while you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. I want to begin with a question. Simply put, what do we love, what do you love most in the world? There's some strange pictures that I have in my mind, and uh, one that comes to mind uh, uh, re relatively recently is that of a famous football player. I won't mention him by name, but some of you will figure it out quite quickly. This particular player comes to mind because earlier this year it was tabloid news, if you will, the breakdown of his own marriage. And uh, the reasons nobody really knows, or we don't really know, according to the news, but it does seem that it might have had something to do with his desire to continue playing football well into his uh, older years, to have one last go at it, one final hurrah. I don't know if that's what led to the breakdown of this particular person's marriage, but what strikes me about the picture is simply the idea that someone might give up something that's meant to last for his entire life in order to have one last year, one final go, one final uh, chance to play 16 games, to get beat up by men twice your size. It seems strange when we think about it. When we consider how fleeting that joy is and the possibility that someone might exchange something of lasting joy for that which cannot last, that which obviously cannot last. And yet, every day in our own lives we're confronted with this same challenge. We're confronted with the challenge to embrace those things which are eternal, to love that which lasts forever on the one hand, and then on the other hand, with the offers that the world presents before us, things that seem joy joyous, things that seem pleasing in the moment, and yet, of course, what we find in the end is that these things don't last. They only offer fleeting joy. This is what John is writing about here in 1 John chapter 2. And his message is rather straightforward and simple, something that we're going to understand quite quickly. And yet, it's not something that we receive simply by understanding it. It's something that, though we can grasp the message pretty simply, it's very hard to actually follow through with what he's calling us to do. What we need to see as we look at this text is that John is going to present various contrasts before uh, our eyes. He's going to contrast origin and destination and love for different objects and God's will and our will or our desires in order to appeal to our affections. Not so that we simply understand what he's saying, but we feel that tug on our hearts and so that we learn to follow through with that which he's calling us to do. So if you found your place in 1 John 2, verse 15, would you follow along with me as I read? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening and we ask for your grace. We ask that you would enable us to hear your word and receive your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would enable us to understand where things aren't clear. Most of all, Father, we pray that you would cause us to feel that tug on our hearts, that tug that causes us to long for things that are eternal, long for your fellowship, long for the joy that comes with receiving that well-done, good and faithful servant on the last day. Help us to long for these things, not long for the things that are fleeting, long for, not to long for the things that are passing away. We know that ultimately, if we're to have this love, if the love of the Father, love for you is to be in our hearts, then we first need your love for us. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that in your grace that you would cause our hearts to well within us with a desire to know you and to be known by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this text, it's helpful to remember the context of the passage. And one way that I'd like to do that is by speaking about tests of fellowship. This is a phrase that comes from John Stott's commentary. It's a helpful way to think about the message of 1 John. That John is giving us various tests that help us to determine whether or not we are in fellowship with God or not. And those tests, I'll slightly vary them from the way John Stott presents them, come in two categories. There are tests of belief and tests of obedience. The tests of belief we'll see in the passages to come, and we've seen some already. They primarily concern two things. What do you say about Christ? What do you say about uh, about our Lord Jesus Christ? What do you believe concerning Him? What do you confess concerning Him? And the second test of belief is what do we say about ourselves in relation to God? We've seen that, especially in that first chapter, as we, as we looked at uh, John's call for us to be confessors of sin. You see, when he, when he taught us that those who walk in the light are those who confess their sins and acknowledge that they need to be confessors of sin. That's a belief test in a certain sense. And we did begin to see this test concerning what we say about Christ. John hinted at it in 1 John chapter 2 at the beginning there. When he spoke about Jesus being our advocate, Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. In other words, do we understand what Christ did in order to accomplish our salvation? And understanding it, do we believe it? Do we embrace it? This is that first set of tests whereby we can discern whether or not we have fellowship with God. The second test is in the category of obedience. That is, do we keep His commandments? And of course, I made this point that this is not about being perfect. It's not about never sinning. Otherwise, that would contradict the test that John gave us concerning uh, what we say about ourselves and, and, and the need to confess our sins. But rather, it's about the direction of our life, the orientation of our life, and, and, and uh, our desire to order our lives in accordance with, with Christ's Word, in accordance with His teaching. And the primary 
act of obedience that John is concerned with can be defined by that simple word love. Positively, it's a love that's directed toward God and others. Okay? You see it in, the, in the, that, uh, this idea of loving one's neighbor. As John draws it out, he talks about loving your brother. If anyone loves his brother, he says, whoever loves his brother, he abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But the one who hates his brother, in him, is just in darkness. He just walks in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going. He's, he's not really living in fellowship with God. You see that, first, that, that test concerning our love. That's a positive test, an obedience test. John is concerned with our ethical life as Christians. But there's a negative test that we're going to look at today in the passage before us, a negative love test, and it's directed toward self and toward the world. In other words, what John is showing us is that if you live your life where all of your hopes and all of your affections and all of your desires are set in one direction, primarily toward yourself, towards the things that the world offers. And that is proof that you're not living in fellowship with God. And so John calls us, he says to us, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, we need to understand these words in their context. If I were to say to you, bark, different things might come to your mind. And you could, be, you could start thinking, okay, the pastor's telling me to bark like a dog. That would be really strange. But if I put that in a sentence, you'll see that this word can have different meanings in different contexts. If I say that person is all bark and no bite, well, that is similar to the idea of a dog barking, but you can tell that it's a metaphor for saying that that person talks a big talk, but there's no action behind it. But I found a rather humorous one earlier today, this idea that uh, someone, might, someone would say, I'm going to strip the bark off him. I've never heard this before, but apparently it's an idiom for uh, a father disciplining his child with the rod. <laughs> uh, I'm going to strip the bark off him as if the, 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 the person the, the, is a tree and he's going to get a whipping. <laughs> well, you see that that same word bark takes on a quite different meaning in a different context. And in the same way, there are many words in this context which we need to understand within that context. And if we don't, we're going to misunderstand the passage. Right from the start, John says, do not love the world. And yet we think, oh, John, you've said, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There in John 3.16. And we need to consider this, that there in John 3.16, the love of God for the world is presented in a different context than what we see uh, here in 1 John. There, God's love takes on a concrete action, or it's represented, it's better to say, it's demonstrated in a concrete action. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. He demonstrated His love. We see His love, as we, we heard this morning, in the fact that He sent His Son so that all who believe in Him might have life. But here in 1 John we see that the kind of love, the kind of affection he's talking about is something quite different. He's not saying don't love the world in the sense of don't go out and preach the gospel, don't try to help your neighbor who's in need. 
He's saying, don't have an inordinate desire for the things that the world has to offer. Don't love the world or the things in the world. He goes on to say, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What you see that John is talking about is desiring the things that the world offers. So it's very different from, from, from one saying, I love the world so much that I'm going to support world missions. Or I'm going to go out and share the gospel with my neighbor. Or I'm going to serve at the soup kitchen. Rather, it's the kind of love that can be seen in someone saying, I love the world so much that I'm going to spend the rest of my life traveling on cruises and, and, and uh, I'm just going to devote my entire life to, um, to acquiring money and wealth or to, to building friendships so that people will love me and, and, and perhaps uh, even running for office and, and, and winning the presidency so that everyone will say, wasn't that a great man? That's the kind of thing that John is talking about. Don't love the world in that way. It's also something where you can see uh, the idea of the world there, obviously, is, is one of um, not so much all the people in the world, but it's, it's the idea that, uh, of a place that is set against God, a place where God's rule is rejected, a place of rebellion against God. And John is also saying, don't love that. Don't love the things that this world values. It's marked primarily by a system of values of people and institutions along with their judgments about what is good and desirable. The things of the world, the things the world values and offers us as in wealth, power, prestige, and privilege. And so you see, this is what John means by the world and this is what he means by love in this particular passage. I could put it another way. John is telling us that we ought not to be idolaters. What do I mean? We, not, we ought not to practice idolatry. What I mean is this. Very often, this particular word for love in the New Testament has God as its object. It doesn't mean that it's always used in that way. That would be pressing too much meaning into an individual word. But very often, when the New Testament writers use this word to speak of love, they're speaking of loving God. They're speaking of love for the Father. And yet, what John is saying here is, you ought not to apply that kind of affection that is, that, that, of, of which only the Father is worthy to the world. You ought not to take the world or the things of the world and put it in the place of God. That's kind of the idea here. Don't be an idolater. It makes sense of the very last verse of 1 John then, which seems strange. Little children, keep yourself from idols. But that last verse of 1 John is really saying the same thing here. Don't love the world. Don't devote your affection and all your devotion to the things that it offers. For God is the only one who is worthy of your affection in that way. Now one might say, well, can't I have both? Can't I, for instance love pizza and love cheeseburgers, right? Of course you can. But that's not a, that's not a good way to think about this. It, that would be more, it would be more like saying, I love pizza, but I hate 
cheese and sauce and dough and bread. Okay, well, if that's the case, then you don't love pizza, you know? Well, this is the idea here. This is the logic of what John is saying. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's saying these things are incompatible. You can't love the world and have the love of the Father in you. Here, the idea of the, the, the words, the love of the Father, it could mean God's love for you, or it could mean our love for God. The context here suggests to us that it's the latter, that it's our love for God. But, but it is important to acknowledge that God's love for us precedes our love for God. You see that in 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Our love is subsequent to God's demonstrated love for us. But here in this context, it is the idea of our love for God, and those two things are incompatible. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And why? What's the logic of that? For all that is in the world is not from the Father. It's, it, it, it's incompatible with him. It's, it's like saying, it's like a man saying, I love my wife and I love another woman. And that strikes us, that's, a, that's an awful thing for a person to say. We, we obviously recognize that's really an impossibility. Because if you loved your wife, you would be totally devoted to her. You would be solely devoted to her so that the other phrase that, that was just uttered is an impossibility. If you love God, you love the things that God loves. You don't love the things that God hates. It's a logical impossibility to have those two affections. What does that look like in practice? Well, there's, a, there's a, an illustration that we can draw by just considering the rich young man. You know the story of the rich young man in Mark chapter 10. You can turn there with me and I'll read it. But Mark chapter 10, we see that a man comes to Jesus and he's seeking to find out how he might receive eternal life. In Mark 10, 17, he was setting out on his journey as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man thought that he wanted eternal life, but when Christ confronted him with his wealth, not because wealth in itself is a bad thing, but because for this man, it was the thing he loved more than anything in the world. And Jesus saw right through him and he understood it. And so looking at him, he loved him and he said to him, go and sell all you have. Get rid of that thing. Those things that you think make you happy, but that are keeping you from, where, from, from eternal life. They're keeping you from following me. Go and sell it all and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus offered him lasting treasure that cannot fail. 
And the man went away sorrowful. He went away grieving. He said, no, I think I'd rather have my riches. Can't I have both? The answer is no. You can love the world or you can love God, but you can't love them both in this same way. So John is calling us. He's appealing to our heart. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, it's important for us to consider origin and destination. If, if, someone, if you saw someone traveling down the street and you were hoping to hitch a ride to some destination, you would want to know a couple things. Where did this person come from before I step into your car? And where is he going before I step into your car? If he's not going in the same direction that you hope to go, there's no point in hitching, your, hitching, hitching a ride with him. And if maybe he's coming from a shady part of town, maybe you also think, I, I don't want to hitch a ride with this person. You want to know where he's coming from and where he's going. And John tells us about the world. All that is in the world, where does it come from? Not from the Father. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And here again, John is not saying that God is not the creator of everything. He is the creator of everything, but John is speaking about those abstractions. He's speaking about the desires, right? He, he, he tells us what he qualifies those things that are in the world. What are they? They're the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is the idea of saying, it, it, the word is desire could be lust, right? When we hear that word lust, we immediately think of, an, uh, of a wrong desire. Either we desire something too much, or we've placed our desire into something that's for, uh, upon something that's forbidden. And so Jesus, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, can apply this word to, uh, to adulterous desires. Any man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart, Jesus says, but he can also apply it in Mark chapter 4 to uh, worldly possessions, to financial things. Someone may lust after the things of the world in, in terms of uh, financial gain or wealth. It can apply to any inordinate desire, whether it's wrongly placed or it's simply too, uh, too, great, to, 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 to a much, uh, too great of a degree. right? And this is what John is talking about when he talks about the things of the world. These kinds of lustful desires, they don't come from God. They come from the world. And similarly, when he speaks about the pride of life, he's talking about um, life could be, that word could be used of possessions. It's, um, it's not, you know, your, your life within you as in terms of the functioning of your body or the soul but it's just sort of, it can be a refer reference to the daily things that you need to do, whether it's just getting food and, and uh, providing for your family or it's just the kind of things that you want to achieve in life. Maybe you have some ambitions at work or maybe you have a, a desire to achieve something great. And none of those things in and of themselves are, are evil necessarily. But this word that attaches to it, the pride of life, implies that what John is talking about is seeking these things in a way that will lift our status in the eyes of others. Seeking these things in a way where people will look at us and say, isn't that a great guy? Look at that car that he drives. Look at how quickly he was promoted at work. Look at, everybody loves him. And we start to think, yeah, I'm pretty great. I'm pretty awesome here. This is the pride of life. 
We're proud of the things that we have, whether it's physical possessions or it's something more abstract like the esteem of our neighbors and the esteem of our community. And John's speaking about these things when he says that all that is in the world is not from the Father. Don't hitch your ride with those things because they didn't come from a place that's trustworthy, that's good. They didn't come from the Father. We also need to think about where they're going. It's not just a matter of where they came from, but it's about, about where they're going. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When I was a third grader, my teacher had this way of rewarding good behavior. She would give us little green tickets. And these little green tickets were, uh, I suppose they were supposed to be green to reflect dollars or something. But if you did well on a test or you, um, you, had some, you, you, acted, you helped a classmate, she'd give you a little green ticket. And you could collect these and then throughout the year periodically, she would come around and you could buy pretzel rods from her or something. But at the end of the year, she was going to hold an auction. This was well advertised. And the auction, basically, she was going to auction off toys and different kinds of things that kids like. And uh, it wasn't very long before I had more tickets than anyone in the class, for whatever reason. And um, I was a real miser about it. I was like Scrooge McDuck. I kept all those tickets for myself. And she'd come around with pretzels. And suddenly, I'd have a great deal of self-control, not because I was such a self-controlled kid, but because I thought in my mind on that last day when she holds that auction, she's going to auction off something amazing. I didn't know what it was, but I was sure that it was going to be great. So I waited to the end of the year, and I remember coming on that last day to school with a backpack full of little green pieces of paper. And my dad said to me as I walked out the door, you better not come home with any tickets. And uh, I said, oh, don't worry, I won't. I went to school, and she started that auction, and I watched everything go by me. I thought it was going to be the last thing. It was going to be great. It was going to be amazing. I watched superhero action figures go by. I watched chocolate, Reese's Cups go by, and I said, no, thanks. It's, not, it's, it's certainly not as good as that last thing. She said, it's the last prize, and what did she pull out of her bag but a plastic pearl necklace? <laughs> and I felt like I had died and gone to fourth grade. <laughs> I, uh, what could I do? I had an order from my dad, and so I said, all my tickets, and no one even quarreled with that. I got the plastic pearl necklace, and I gave it to a friend who had a sister who might like it. But I learned an important lesson that day. And uh, again, when I opened my backpack on the first day of fourth grade and found a bunch of pieces of paper that were too small to use for anything, worthless. But isn't that what the world is like? Isn't that what the things around us are like? They're passing away. And we don't always get to see it. We don't always appreciate it. We think, oh, if I invest my money in this investment vehicle, it will last me. For, for what? Forever? Certainly not. It's part of the world. And the world's passing away. What did Jesus teach us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about the foundation, a proper foundation for our life. If a man hears the words of Christ and keeps them, he's like a man who builds his house on the rock, but the one who rejects Christ's word, what is he like? A man who builds his house on the sand. No foundation. And what happens in the end? That 
house in the sand, it falls down. It's like standing on a rug and someone coming out eventually and grabbing that rug and pulling it out from under you. And you go toppling down. But the person who builds his life from the words of Christ and the things that God loves is like someone who's holding on to something firm as that rug comes out from under him. And he's still standing in the end. That's what John is saying. The world is passing away along with its desires. So why would you love it? Why would you set your affection on it? Why would you live your life seeking these things which will not last? And the implication, of course, is that you were not made like this. You were made to last. You were made for eternity, not just for this world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, he abides forever. Now here, of course, we need to remind ourselves that the will of God, here in John and and, and broadly, what John is calling us to do is not to be perfectly obedient. The will of God is seen in putting our faith in Christ, repenting of sin and turning to Christ and, and seeking to form our life in accordance with the things that He teaches, founded primarily upon that principle of love, love for God and love for neighbor. That's the will of God for us. And the person who commits his life, quite simply, to these things, that person has a foundation that will last and will last forever. Jim Elliot, famous missionary, wrote this line in his diary. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can compliment that statement by saying, he is a fool who forgoes what lasts forever for what is passing away. You see, when we reflect on the world, when we look at what's out there, we really, can, we really ought to see that it is passing away before our eyes. We ought to see the signs of it. In one commentary, the author wrote these words, and this was just published in 2008. He writes, As I write this section, word has arrived of the in utero death of a colleague's baby. Doctors turned the perfectly healthy firstborn son to be to correct a breach, positioning scant days before the due date. The umbilical cord was apparently pinched in the process. The funeral will be private. Meanwhile, a retired colleague's wife and primary caregiver just sustained a sudden, massive, fatal heart attack. Another colleague's wife is battling terminal cancer without notable success thus far. The chemotherapy is proving to be more debilitating than the radical surgery that preceded it. An email just in tells of another kidnapped Christian in Sudan. He has a wife and small children, and no one can find him. Another report documents the torture and slaying of more Christian political prisoners in that same country. On the local front, a high school hockey player was left totally and irreversibly paralyzed last night by a late cross-check. Meanwhile, and he goes on to talk about reading secular scholars who don't even, who, who are teaching seminarians that Nothing in the Bible is true. And he goes on from there and says, this is just the stuff that's come to his attention in the last few hours as he's writing about this passage before us. By the time these words are published, he says, what is outlined above will be old news, but there will be no shortage of more of the same to replace it. He says, this is the world. We could write our own paragraph just like that with the events of the past week. 
Children with cancer, mass shooting not far away, multiple trains derailed, poisoning rivers with hazardous chemicals, wars in every corner of the world, runaway inflation, the threat of disease, political turmoil, and on and on we go as the world spins around. We're only 14 years on from the publication of that book. This is the world. And John wants us to consider why on earth would we set our affection on this world? It's true that it is also full of wonderful and good things, but it's, also, but it, but it's racked by all of, the, all of the effects of sin in this life. This is just an example of that. And when we think about that, it ought to strike us. What John is saying, this is good news, that this world is passing away. This world that... I've just described is passing away, and we ought to say amen and rejoice. Not that we rejoice in the suffering, but we rejoice because it has an expiration date. And that world that will not pass away, to which we belong if we trust in Christ, none of these things that I've just spoken about, none of these things will endure in that world. They're all passing away along with the world, along with its desires. So it, this text before us, it's simple. It's good news. It's easy to understand, and yet it's hard to put in place. How do we do it then? How do we live a life whereby we don't live loving the world? And the answer is, we turn our attention to those things that last. Again and again, we look to Christ. We look to His Word. We look to the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. We seek those things above all. And it's true that we have to get on with life. We have to provide for our families. We have to do the things that are typical for ordinary life. But we do those things in such a way where they are not the things that, um, not the things that, uh, not, not our reason to be. Not our our entire reason for living this life. There is a helpful parable. I'll close with this. There's a helpful parable in Luke, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 16. It's a parable of the dishonest manager. There in Luke 16 and verse 1, Jesus tells us this. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that the man, this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. For you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. 
See what Jesus is saying in this parable? Is he's presenting a picture of a system that is passing away, of a world that is passing away. And that particular manager who's been dishonest, who hasn't fulfilled his master's um, will, hasn't managed his master's resources wisely and faithfully, that man has come to recognize, I am in a world that is passing away. He's, in this case, it's an economic reality. It's about to be taken from me, and I've got a little bit of time to do something with it that will last. So he starts to cut deals to those who owe his master a debt. One pastor explaining this gave, gave an illustration uh, that, that was very helpful. He said it's like playing Monopoly. It's like playing Monopoly, but playing the game in such a way where the people you're playing with will be thankful that you kept doing them favors and they'll do something for you in real life. Maybe you helped your mom win the game and so she's going to make you a plate of cookies. This man who had been dishonest came to understand that the world he was living in was passing away. And so he changed his focus in life. He stopped pursuing the things that he loved, whether in his case it was just laziness and or wealth, or something like that. And he started trying to make, uh, to gain something that would last him beyond that. He made friends with people, and Jesus says, if dishonest, unrighteous people do that, how much more should the sons of the kingdom be able to take the things that we have in this world and use them in such a way where it's not all about enriching our, uh, our, ourselves and our own lives, but it's about serving eternal purposes, about seeking that which lasts, about laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's how you do what John is saying. That's how you start to live in such a way where you don't love the world, but you set your affections on God, is you set your mind on eternal things, set your mind in the words of Colossians 3 on things above. And then you take the things that are below, the things that God has given us in this world, and instead of loving them and pursuing them, you recognize that they are a means. They are something that it's going to pass away, but while it's still here before it reaches its expiration date, I can make use of that in a way that will be fruitful in eternity. I can use the things that God has given me to love others. I can use the thing that, things that God has given me to serve others. And all the, of course, you take care of your family, you do the things that are necessary and that are part of your responsibility. But you don't, you don't spend your, your, your days thinking, what's the balance of my 401k? Or how can I ensure that I can retire early at 55 and spend the rest of my life traveling on cruises, you see? But what can I do with these things that don't last? that will last in eternity. That's how we turn our attention and reframe the way we think so that we learn not to live in love with this world, but to live with love for our Maker. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray that you would teach us how to live in this life in such a way that our eyes are fixed on eternity. 
as we do it, Lord, may we not become self-righteous in it. Lord, help us to recognize that even obedience to your word and your will, it comes from you. Help us to be those who do your will, who love what you desire, who aren't ruled by our own fleshly desires, but who are always seeking to do your will, Lord, knowing that the one who does your will is the one who abides forever. Father, we pray that you would write these things in our hearts and in our minds. Make us doers of your word, even as we have been hearers of your word this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.